Well, welcome. We are in our continuing study of Romans, and we are finishing up the 10th chapter of Romans today. It won't take us the entire time to do that. And then we'll open the floor to some questions because this is the end of the semester. And um, we will not be gathering again until next year. So just keep that in mind. But it's an appropriate way to end because part of what we'll talk about, at least initially, is going to have somewhat of a Christmas theme to it. So it's a good way for us to round out this semester. But if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them up to Romans chapter 10, beginning at verse 18, and we'll read through the end of the chapter, that is through verse 21. Paul writes, but I ask, have they not heard? Indeed they have, for their voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. But I ask, did Israel not understand? First, Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. Then Isaiah is so bold as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. But of Israel, he says, all day long, I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. So Paul here in Romans chapter 10 is finishing up his response to the charge that was brought against him, that if the gospel that he is proclaiming is true, then it seems as though God's promises made centuries before to the Jews really didn't come to fruition that God wasn't true to his promises because, after all, they were God's chosen people, and yet they have not accepted the gospel. As a matter of fact, as we pointed out last week, it's not a case where just a few didn't acknowledge the gospel. Vast majorities of the Jewish people had not acknowledged the gospel. Now, Paul, in Romans chapters 9 and 10, has been responding to that charge, But the final argument that he responds to here as he finishes up this section is the charge that perhaps the Jews never really heard the gospel. Or maybe they heard the gospel, but they really didn't understand the gospel. You know, that's what we often do when when people don't respond to the gospel. Sometimes we try to make excuses for them because we don't want to think of them being separated from God for all eternity. And so we'll say, well, maybe they just didn't hear it. We often raise that question, don't we, when it comes to people in far off lands. We say, well, what about those who have never heard the gospel? And even those who have heard it, we sometimes say, well, perhaps they just didn't understand it. Maybe they didn't comprehend it. Maybe the person who was proclaiming it to them just wasn't all that effective. Well, Paul has already dealt with the first of those excuses, namely that what happens to those who have never heard the gospel. Paul dealt with that in Romans chapter 1 when he talked about general revelation. He says, we're going to be judged on the basis of what we know. But men are without excuse because God has made himself known in the things that have been made in the created order. And if people, recognizing that there is a God by virtue of the creation, seeks God, if they seek God, well, then they will find him. If you earnestly seek him with all your heart, then the promise is that God will reveal himself to you. Well, Paul says that is not the case with the Jews anyway. Uh, The reality is of all the people... And all the earth, 
They alone should have received the gospel. John makes a similar argument at the beginning of his gospel, and he says, the word was made flesh, and it was that word that came to his own, and his own what? Received him not. And Paul says that is exactly what happened with the Jews. He ends, verse 17, so faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. But I ask, have they not heard? Indeed they have, for their voice has gone out to all the earth, and their words to the ends of the world. He said the very idea that somebody can make an excuse and says that they haven't heard the gospel simply isn't true. He says the gospel is being proclaimed to the ends of the earth. Well, what if they didn't understand? He deals with that in verse 19. But I asked, did Israel not understand? First, Moses said, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. Then Isaiah is so bold as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. So Paul rounds out this whole section by saying, yes, the Jews have heard the gospel. Yes, the Jews have rejected the gospel. And yes, they have rejected the gospel, not because they didn't understand it, but because they took offense at the gospel of grace. Now, those are pretty somber words. And yet, remember, the charge that is being brought against Paul is the charge that, well, God's promises are null and void. And what Paul wants us to understand as he finishes this section is that nothing could be further from the truth. That's what he's talking about when he says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. Paul is reminding us that God's eternal decrees, God's eternal promises are never null and void. And there is nothing that human beings can do to thwart those promises. That if God makes a promise, he will see that that promise is fulfilled. I think it's important for us to step back for a moment and try and understand the sweep of history from God's point of view. You know, we oftentimes look at the story of man's creation and man's fall, and we tend to think that God was taken by surprise when that happened. And therefore, what God had originally was a plan A, and when we messed everything up, God had to go to plan B. Now, that's often the way it is with you and me, because we are creatures we are not in control of our lives. We like to think that we're in control of our lives, but we all recognize that there are times when things happen that we are not expecting. And we may make our plans, we may have our desires and our designs, but sometimes life interrupts. And we have to go to plan B. And we think that that's the way it is with God, because obviously that's the way it is with us. But I want you to understand that is not the case at all. Keep your finger there in Romans and turn, if you will, to the book of Revelation, the last book of the Bible. And I want you to notice how Jesus is described in Revelation chapter 13. Revelation chapter 13, beginning at verse 5. Now, this is one of those visions that is very difficult to interpret, 
I know everybody wants me to go ahead and teach a class on Revelation. I would remind you that I have taught at least a portion of Revelation. I taught a whole series on the seven letters to the seven churches, but everybody wants me to finish that out with something else because this is the book that is so controversial. And maybe, maybe, God willing, I'll get to that, but not right now. So this is one of those visions. I'm, I'm not going to try to explain the whole thing. I, it's just one small section that I want you to note. But beginning, Revelation chapter 13, beginning at verse 5, And the beast was given a mouth, uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming His name and His dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation. And all who dwell on the earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundations of the world in the book of the life of the Lamb who was slain. In that section, John is describing Christ as the Lamb who was slain before the foundations of the earth. And when he talks about people having their name written in the book of life, he says, written in the book of life when? Before the foundations of the earth. In other words, John is saying, with God, there is no plan B. There's only a plan A. And that's what Paul is getting at in Galatians chapter 4 when he writes these words, And in the fullness of time, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law. That's the Christmas connection with today's passage. That in the fullness of time, translate that at just the right time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, that is born of the Virgin Mary, born under the law, subject to the law, that he might redeem those under the law. When did God send forth his son? At just the right time. At just the right time. Basically, what Paul is reminding us of is God's eternal plan of the salvation of the world. Now, we've talked about this before, but I want to end this semester on this note so you just have this cemented in your mind. This is what I call getting the Adam Project back on track. So basically, what the story of the Bible is, is this. God created the world. He created the world, and it was pleasing in his eyes. It was perfect. When I say perfect, I don't mean perfect in the sense that you and I regard perfect, because that is a very subjective thing, but it was perfect for God's purposes. When God looked on the world that he had made, it, he declared that it was good. It was good. It was very good. It was, that is to say, it was pleasing to him. It was created according to his plan and his purpose and his likeness. You read through the opening chapters of Genesis, you see all of the things that God creates. And the pinnacle of God's creative activity is what? Man. man. And why is man the pinnacle of God's creative activity? Because man, unlike all of the other creatures, is made in the image of God. You and I were created, first of all, for eternity. We are all going to live for eternity. We're either going to live for eternity with God or we're going to live for eternity separated from God. But we're all created for eternity. 
That is why death to us is such a fearful prospect. You know, animals don't worry about their death. They really don't. I, I shared this a few years ago at Easter, and somebody thought that this was rather astonishing. I have never seen a dog, and we've had several of them. I've never seen a dog fret about its mortality. We had a golden retriever some years ago that contracted cancer, which unfortunately is something that happens to that particular breed frequently. And the dog, um, toward the end of its life, really was debilitated. I mean, I had to carry him up and down the stairs because it got into his bones and so forth. It was really sad. But one day, I came home. He always wanted to be outside. He loved being outside, and we had a large yard at the time. And I came home, and I, I couldn't find him anywhere in the yard, and he wasn't in the house, and I was worried about him. So I, I went over through the yard looking, and we had a patch of ivy, and he had crawled into this patch of English ivy, and he had just laid down. So I called a friend of mine who was a vet, and he came, and he said, you know, it's, we're getting really close at this point. But he gave him a shot of something, and he sort of revived for a day or two. And then one day, he couldn't get out of the house, so I had to take him out so he could use the bathroom. And he normally just wouldn't leave my side, always wanted to nuzzle up to me, always wanted to put his head on my knee. But on this particular day, he walked away from me. He, he walked over toward that same patch of ivy to lie down. And I called my friend, and he came, and he said, he knows. And he said, I've got news for you. He said, you're more troubled by it than he is. <laughs> and, and it seemed that way. Whereas we rail against the idea of death, animals just sort of take it with resignation. This is just the way things are. Well, why is it that you and I cry out against the dying of the light? Why is it that we rail against death? It's because you and I were not created to die. We were created for life. That's what we are. We are immortal creatures made in the image of God. And as immortal creatures made in the image of God, we have God consciousness. We are aware of God. We are aware of the fact that we can have fellowship, a relationship with him. And we are also moral creatures. We understand right and wrong. Now, you can train an animal not to do certain things. You can train him by positive reinforcement, and you can train him by negative reinforcement. But the only reason he's going to do something or not do something is because he knows that there will either be a reward for it or because he knows there will be a punishment for it. But he hasn't the ability to reason that this is morally acceptable or morally repugnant to his creator. Human beings have that ability. We really are unique. We stand head and shoulders over the creation. And that's what God created us to be, to be regions over the creation. God created man in his image. He gave him dignity. He gave him honor. And he made us regents over this great creation. He said, you have the ability to subdue it, to bring order out of chaos. And that's what we were called to do. Of all the creatures, we were given that honor, that dignity, that distinguished position. And yet, the scripture says we were not satisfied with that distinguished position. 
You know, the old poem is, it takes more grace than I can tell to play the second fiddle well. We don't like being number two. We want to be number one. And so what happened? Well, mankind, not being satisfied with being the regents over creation, second only to God, we wanted to be God. We wanted to be like God. That's the story of the fall, isn't it? You've heard me say many times before, the problem for Adam and Eve was not that they ate of the tree. The reason they ate of the tree is because they wanted to be what? Like God. What does it mean to be like God? It means to be in charge. It means to be the master of your own fate, the captain of your own destiny. We wanted to kick God off the throne, and we wanted to put ourselves on the throne. And that is treason in God's eyes. And so what happens is that we end up in a long warfare against God. I'm going to talk about this on Christmas Eve, but this is a big part of the Christmas story, that you and I are at enmity with God. But God, listen to this, who is the injured party, who is the innocent party, out of love for us, rather than destroying us, which he could have done for our treason, instead decides to make peace with us. And how does he do that? He sends his very own son in the fullness of time. But first, what he does is he calls a particular man. This is the doctrine of election that Paul was talking about. Out of all the peoples of the earth, God calls a particular man. His name was Abraham. And out of that particular man, God called a particular nation, a particular people, a race, the Jews. And from the Jews, there came a particular Savior in the fullness of time, Jesus Christ, who was born of the Virgin. And from that particular Savior, Jesus Christ made an offer of reconciliation, redemption, salvation, not just to the Jews, but to the whole world. And what happens? The Jews themselves, the people through whom this Messiah came, reject the message, sadly. And so the message goes from the Jews to a people who had not been the chosen ones, to the Gentiles. That's what Paul is talking about here in Romans chapter 10 when he says, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. And so the gospel has gone out to the Gentiles. And the Gentile people have received it. This is exactly what we saw a week ago in Acts chapter 13, where Paul went into Pisidian Antioch and he preached the gospel. And initially there was a great deal of enthusiasm about all of this. And the Jews said, come back the next week. We'd like to hear more. Paul came back the next week. The place was filled. The Jews became jealous. They rejected the gospel message. And what does Paul say? Because you consider yourselves unworthy of eternal life, we will now turn to the Gentiles. And we're told the Gentiles receive the word of the Lord. And the gospel spread throughout the entire region. That is the pattern. It was a pattern in Paul's own ministry. And Paul says that is what we see happening in history. And yet, here's the point. God has not forsaken his people. God still has a plan for the Jews. And here's how God fulfills his plan for the Jews. He allows this hardening to come upon them for a time. 
And the gospel goes out to the Gentiles. And Gentile people, the uncircumcised dogs, as the Jews called them in the first century, are a people who then begin to reap the benefits of the gospel of grace. They find that they are no longer under a sentence of death. They have been forgiven. They have been pardoned. They have been adopted into the family of God. They who were once far off have been brought near. And they've begun to experience that peace of God which passes human understanding. And he says, the Jews look at that and they get jealous. They get jealous and they say, why should they have what we ought to have? And what Paul is going to go on to talk about in Romans chapter 11 is that he says there's going to come a time in history when the Jews are going to become so jealous of the Christian church and the blessings and the glories that they have received, they will be provoked to jealousy and they will come back and they will say, we want our blessing again. And through the very Gentiles, the gospel will return to the Jews and Paul says, all Israel will be saved. Now, let me ask you a question. Who but God could think of that? That's God's great plan of salvation. It's no plan B. It is plan A. This is the amazing thing about God's love and God's mercy. God looks down the corridors of time and space, and even before he creates us, he knows the decision that we will make. By giving us the opportunity to choose or to reject him, God creates the possibility that we will wage war against him. He knows the decisions we will make even before we make them. Now, if you and I looked down the corridors of time and thought about we were going to create, if we were God, we were going to create the world, and we know that the creatures we create are going to rage war against us, most of us would say, well, let's not do that. But God instead, out of love, does it. And even before we sin, even before we rebel, God sets in motion the plan by which we would ultimately and not just we, but the whole world, be saved. Now that's an extraordinary thing. And that is what Paul says is happening here in Romans chapter 10. But I asked, did Israel not understand? Oh, they understood. But it's not as though I have forsaken them. For I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. And even in verse 21, even though it sounds like a verse of condemnation, it actually is a verse of hope. All day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. I want you to understand that God still holds out his hands to disobedient and contrary people. God doesn't appeal to us, offer us the gift of salvation, love us only when we have managed to clean up our act. God demonstrates his love for us in that even though we are sinners, he still loves us. So there is still hope, and that's what we're going to see in Romans chapter 11, as God continues to extend his hands 
and the gospel through means of the Gentiles to this contrary and disobedient people until in the last days there will be a great revival among God's ancient nation. And Jew and Gentile, all the true sons and daughters of Abraham, the true Israel, will be saved. Who but God could think of that? Creation, fall, redemption, but one day, consummation. And that's what we look forward to. And that is what Romans chapter 11 is all about. If you look ahead in Romans chapter 11 to verse 25, in some Bibles this is under the listing or the heading, the mystery of Israel's salvation. You know what that word mystery means? When we think of a mystery, we think of something like a book by Agatha Christie. We think of a conundrum, a puzzle, something that we have to sort out. In the Bible, in the New Testament, a word mystery does not mean that. It doesn't mean a puzzle or conundrum. A mystery is something that was hidden from people at one point, but is revealed to the initiated. That's why they had mystery religions, sort of like joining one of those animal lodges or joining the Masonic order or something like that. You don't know their secret, um, you know, words or their, their, their secret rites or anything until you are what? Initiated in. It's like joining a, foror, a sorority or a fraternity. You don't know much about it until you are initiated. Now, you might be thinking, well, that's not a really great example. Well, then let me give you one that you might be able to relate to. It's like Curcio. You don't know a whole lot about Curcio. Nobody wants to talk about Curcio. Sounds like a cult until you go to it, and then you're what? Initiated into it, and you learn the secrets. God's plan to save Israel from the beginning had been secret from them. But it is now being revealed in the last days as the gospel goes out to the Gentile people. That's what he's going to talk about in the section that we're going to head into in the new year. It's an exciting part of Romans chapter 11, and I can't wait to share it with you. But not yet. We don't want to start that section yet. We wanted to simply finish up Romans chapter 10. So we've got about a half an hour, um, and I will open the floor to any questions that you have, either about this or about anything else, and I'll be glad to answer those as best I can. Yes? I'll repeat the question. If God is doing all of these things, is it possible that God is doing all Romans 5. Oh, yes. 
you get the golden star today for just remembering the word. It is that God's choice of individuals in election is not made before the fall, but in light of the fall. In other words, his choice as to save some or reject others, all the creeds do not regard that as being on the basis of superlapsarianism. That is, even before God creates the world, even, even before the fall, God chooses one and does not choose the other. Now, again, this is a big debate in theology, and all I'm saying is that the creeds do not operate on the basis of superlapsarianism, but on the basis of infralapsarianism. I think what we have to be very careful about when we talk about this and God's eternal decrees and God's knowledge of all things, we have to be very careful in this, and there's a mystery here, not to make God the knowledge of evil. Knowledge of something or foreknowledge of something, that is, knowledge that something is going to happen, does not necessarily mean that you have made it happen. So, when God creates the world and creates man with free will, and remember we talked about that distinction between free will and free choice, that Adam and Eve as the perfect man and the perfect woman, woman as, the, as the fountainhead, if you will, of the human race, they had free will. Everybody else after them has free choice. But our choices are made on the fact that our will is bound. But they had free will. They had never sinned, but they were capable of sinning. That's why um, St. Augustine describes it as being, remember those, those terms, the Latin terms? He said they were posse pecare, that is, able to sin. After they ate of the tree, they became non posse, non pecare, not able not to sin. Now, because of the grace of Jesus Christ, we are posse non pecare, able not to sin. Doesn't mean we won't, it just means that by the grace of the Holy Spirit, we're able to resist temptation and sin. And the time is coming, he says, when we will not be able to sin. That's when we are in glory with Christ, made like unto him. And that's the super miracle of all. But everybody after Adam and Eve is non posse, non pecari, not able not to sin. And we know that. The very things I want to do, I do not do, and the very things I hate, these are the things I do. But Adam and Eve were unique in that they were able to sin. They hadn't, but they were able to. And that is the creation. When God creates the world, he gave those first humans the ability to choose, to choose freely. They had not yet been tainted by sin. Their lives had not been corrupted by sin. They could choose to follow God or they could choose to follow their own way. They were deceived, we're told, by the serpent. And that's what God sees beforehand. As he looks down the corridors of time, he knows he's going to create this world. He's going to give them free will. Why does he give them free will, if that's the case, that, that, that they can use it against him? Because that's the only thing that makes love possible. 
If he had not given them free will, they would have been automatons. They would have been robots. So God gives them free will, conscious of the fact that they might use that against him. And because he's omniscient and he sees all things, he realizes they will. And he creates them anyway. A fall before the fall with the angelic beings. This is one of the great mysteries that theologians have debated for, well, forever. Um, what about the fall before the fall? Where did evil come from? If God created this world good, where in the world did the serpent come from? And there's a great deal of speculation, and that's based upon the fall of Satan. You know, Jesus talks about seeing Satan fall and so forth. And quite frankly, we don't know a lot about that. Even the Jews speculated about it in their writings, not just in the Old Testament writings, but in the extra-biblical writings. There's just much that we don't know about. There's much that we don't understand about evil. And this is one of those things that we're all going to queue up for God's great Q&A, and we're all going to ask him some of these questions. To manifest his glory to them? That's the question. And could God have just done all of this to manifest his glory and his majesty to them? The answer is yes. Yes. I think this is the thing that we find a hard time understanding. And that is the primary goal in everything that God does is not our salvation. Oh, shock. Let me, let me put it to you this way. It's not all about us. Now, that doesn't mean that God doesn't love us. It doesn't mean that God doesn't care for us. But the scriptures are clear. Everything that God does is ultimately for his glory. Now you say, well, that's really self-centered. Well, it would be self-centered if God was a human. But he's not. He's the creator. He's the sustainer of the entire cosmos. Everything that is exists because he called it into being. It only stands to reason that it's all about him. Because he is self-existent. Now, it is incredibly, incredibly egocentric for humans to say it's all about them because we are not self-sufficient. This is why when God reveals himself to Moses, remember up there on the mountain? And Moses said, well, give me your name. I'm going to go to your people. I, I need your name. What does God say? God says, I am. None of us can say that. The very best that a human being can say is this. I am what I am by the grace of God. Every breath we take is a borrowed gift from God. Everything we have ultimately derives from God. But God is eternal. 
He has no beginning. He has no end. Of course, it's all about him. This is the challenge for us as human beings, not to compare God to ourselves. We are made in his image, but that is a pale reflection to who he really is. There are many things about us that God has. The very fact that you and I can have fellowship with God, that is what God enjoys in the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and he wants us to enjoy that. But there are some qualities, what theologians call the attributes of God, which you and I simply do not have. And we're never going to have them. Even when we're made like unto Christ, we're never going to have them. What are those unique attributes of God? Well, certainly one is the fact that he is eternal. He always was, always will be. The alpha, the omega, the first, the last, that's not us. You and I have a starting point and we have an expiration date. <laughs> and that's just a fact. God is omniscient. He knows all things. We do not know all things. We see through a glass dimly. And even when we get to heaven, while we will understand a great deal more than we do today, that doesn't mean that we will understand everything. Why? Because we will be glorified creatures, but we'll still be creatures. God is omnipotent. He is all-powerful. We are not. If you don't believe that, just think about the fact that you have an expiration date. So there are certain things that God has that you and I just do not have. That is who he is. And that is why Paul breaks out into those wonderful doxologies in letters like to the Ephesians where he says, you know, all the power, the glory, the honor, the majesty belong to him. And I think that's what we have to keep in mind. And that's really hard for us and you say, well, this is hard for me. This, this expands my mind. Why shouldn't it? There is no deeper subject. There's no greater subject than God. This is one of the reasons why theology was always considered the queen of the sciences. You know, theo means God. Ology means science. Biology means the study of life. Bio, life. Theology is the study of God. It was always considered to be the queen of the sciences because every other science, every other study flows from that one. Incidentally, at Oxford University today, the highest degree that is still awarded by that university is a doctor in theology. For this very reason. Absolutely. Because philosophy is, is, is thinking through the world, but it's using the human mind to think through these things. You know, one of the famous scientists once said that science is nothing more than the process of thinking God's thoughts after him. So. When I pray, the question is, how do I see God in my mind? Well, that's, that's really interesting, and I don't know that I could exactly say that. Um, I, I, I don't picture a figure as such, but I do speak to God as a father. When I think of what is God like, I think of Jesus Christ. 
And this is one of the reasons why it's acceptable to pray to the Father, the Son, or the Holy Spirit. It's one of the reasons why some prayers are addressed to Jesus. I think for some people, that's helpful for them to sort of imagine Jesus as because he took on human flesh. And it is hard for us to imagine God who is spirit, the Father who is spirit, and the third person of the Trinity who is spirit. Um, I don't know. I mean, we're, we're, we're sort of bound as human beings, so we're going to picture all sorts of things in our minds. I think the best thing to do is to study the Scriptures and to see God as He is revealed in the Scriptures. And the more you know about how He is, the more accurate and defined your picture of Him will become. If it is a case where you're having a hard time imagining what God is like and so forth, if you're just sort of picturing this sort of inanimate, um, disinterested sort of force like the deists used to believe, that is probably because you have a limited knowledge of his word. I've said to people before, getting to know God is like getting to know anybody else. The more time you spend with him, the more you'll begin to understand who he is and what he is like, and you'll get a better picture of him. But I can't say that I have this picture. If you're, if you're thinking, do you imagine God sitting up on a throne with a long white beard? No, I don't think that way. I suppose when I pray even to the Father, my images are more of Jesus. And that's for good reason. Because Jesus himself said, Philip, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. Remember, that's what the disciples said. They said, show us the Father, show us God. And Jesus said, how much longer must I be with you? If you've seen me, you've seen God. You've seen the Father. Bill, you had a question. Yeah, I'm not even sure how to ask it. But, um, well, then I'm not sure how to answer it. But you go ahead and give it a whirl. Well, just taking this last um, verse. And yes, in Romans 10. 11, 25. Did you reference? Okay. Well, what Paul says, let's just go back to the text and look at it closely. Lest you be wise in your own sight, I want you to understand this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. Now, go ahead. So, my question is, all Israel at the time this happens, or all Israel throughout history, those that Okay. All of Israel. Right. And when you say the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, is that those that have been, um, God has taken note of, or all Gentiles? Okay. So the question really comes down to what is Paul talking about when he talks about all Israel? What I think is being taught in Romans chapter 11, and we're not there yet, so just suspend your judgment, but when we get there, what I think God is, what Paul is teaching is that, just what I've said, that God 
has allowed a partial hardening to come upon the Jewish people until the full company of the Gentiles, until the gospel has gone out to all those Gentiles who by God's sovereign decree have been chosen before the foundations of the world. And once that gospel has extended to all those Gentiles, yes, it does seem to me that in Romans chapter 11, there will be a great revival among God's ancient people, and they will come back. Now, we've already noted, however, that some have already been lost. Some have rejected the gospel. So what is Paul talking about when he talks about all Israel? Does he mean all of ethnic Israel? Or is he talking about all of spiritual Israel? He's talking about a revival among God's ancient ethnic people, but he's also talking about the fact that the Gentiles have been grafted in. So turn, if you will, to Ephesians. And we're going to start at chapter 2, verse 11. And we're going to read through this section into chapter 3. Now, Paul is writing, of course, to the church in Ephesus. This was a Gentile church. But look at how he describes it. He says, Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision. That is, the circumcision were the what? The Jews, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ. You were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. You were strangers to the covenants of promise. You were without hope and without God in the world. That, that's a pretty bleak picture. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. The critical part there is he has made us both one. You were once separated. The Jews were the covenant people. They were the circumcised ones. You were the outsiders. You were the strangers. You were the foreigners. You were the aliens. But now in Christ Jesus, God has broken down the dividing wall of hostility and he has made us both one. That is to say, God has brought you, the Gentiles, into the covenant community. All of the promises, all of the benefits that went to the Jews are now extended to you. You're no longer outside the family, you're inside the family. Now that's what Paul is saying. Follow through. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one. He has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two. So making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and he preached peace to you who were far off and to peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. He's talking about Jews and Gentiles here. We now both have access. We are now both part of the same family. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints, members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the chief cornerstone. 
Now, skip to chapter 3, verse 1. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that has been given to you, given to me too for you, how the mystery, now there's that word, mystery, it means something that was hidden before but has now been revealed. The mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men and other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery, hidden before, but now revealed, is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promises in Christ Jesus through the gospel. So what I think Paul is talking about in Romans chapter 11 is this. There are ethnic Jews, and a hardening has come upon them. But there are still some among them that have been numbered among the elect. And as the gospel has now gone to the Gentiles, those elect Jews are going to be provoked to jealousy. And the Gentiles are going to bring the gospel back to them, and there's going to be a great revival among God's ancient people. And therefore, all Israel will be saved. He's not talking about ethnic Israel. He's talking about the new Israel, which is composed of both Jews and Gentiles, all who are the true children of Abraham by faith. For the dividing wall of hostility has been broken down. The two have become one. Does that make sense? All right. I think that's what God is doing there. Now, that doesn't mean that the church replaces Israel. This is not replacement theology. But it is a blending of the two. That the church is, in a sense, a spiritual Israel, and it's composed of both ethnic Jews and Gentiles, all of whom are now one in Christ. I refuse to speculate on the timing of the Lord's second coming as to whether or not it's going to happen before this. I mean, obviously, that would seem to be the case. But some would argue that there is a great revival taking place among the Jews. I mean, you hear a great deal these days about completed Jews or Messianic Jews or Jews for Jesus. That is to say, people who were raised. We baptized last month a convert from Judaism. And we're getting ready to baptize another one. What is happening? Well, God is working in the lives of his ancient people. And he's doing this in other parts of the world. This is particularly true when you go to the Holy Land. There are a great many Jews. Now, the problem, of course, is that their own people say, well, if you convert to Christianity, you cease to be a Jew. And then you're in this whole debate as to how do you define Judaism? Because there are many Jews out there that are not religious Jews at all. They're secular Jews. So is being a Jew a matter of religion and faith, or is it a matter of ethnicity? And that depends upon who you ask. But certainly there does seem to be a revival among God's ancient ethnic people. But that's the only reason why I refuse to speculate and say, well, 
Because if the Son of Man doesn't know when he's coming back, and it's his party, I don't know when he's coming back. Yes, Charlene. Yes. That they will not continue to say he's not the Messiah. I mean, I know that's probably all of what you're saying, but am I wrong? Yes, that is correct. That the Jews that Paul is referring to in Romans chapter 11 will accept the gospel of grace and the lordship of Jesus Christ. That is correct. That is correct. Yes, Elizabeth. Spell that word. Super lapsarian. S U P. R-A-L-A-P-L-A-P-L-A-P-L-A-P-L-A-P-L-A-P-L-A-P-L-A-P-L-A-P-L-A-P-L-A-P-L-A-P-L-A-P-L-A-P-L-A-P-L-A-P-
and be disobedient. I mean, isn't that what Jesus said? He said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. One of the ways that you know you love Jesus Christ is if you keep his commandments. So there is an element of obedience in the Christian life. We'll talk a little bit about that on Christmas too. Yes. Yeah, the question is, is it a foregone conclusion that the Jews will turn? They have to turn in order to be saved, but will they? In that sense, they are like everybody else. Now, Paul acknowledges the fact that they have a great many benefits that other people don't have. But yes, no one is going to be saved except by Jesus Christ. That, that, that is clear. That is the teaching of the Scripture. Now, this is what theologians call the, here's another big phrase, the scandal of radical particularity. People get very offended when you say, well, Jesus is the only way, the only truth, the only life. I wish Reverend Miller wouldn't say that. I didn't say it. He said it. He said, I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. I always say, we look at it from a human perspective and we say, well, God needs to provide many ways. Actually, let's look at it from God's position. He doesn't have to offer any way. The fact that he offers one way is merciful and gracious. So a way has been offered to Jews and Gentiles. Gentiles must believe in Christ in order to be saved. Jews must believe in Christ in order to be saved. Right now, it does not appear as though a great many Jews have. But what Paul seems to be teaching in Romans chapter 11, and when we get there, we'll talk about the fact that not everybody sees it this way. But what Paul seems to be saying, at least as far as I read it in Romans chapter 11, is that the time will come when there will be a revival among God's ancient people. And many of them will turn and receive Christ as Lord and Savior, as the long-promised, long-anticipated Messiah of God. That's right. And that's why Paul says he has unceasing anguish for them. That's what he says is because he said, look at all that they have, all these benefits, and the benefits are not contributing to their salvation. Okay, great questions, really good questions. And we stayed on track for the most part, so well done. Well, let's close with a word of prayer, and then... Um, well, I won't see you in September, as the song says, but I'll see you in January, if not before. Let us pray. Father, we give you thanks for this great epistle to the Romans. It is deep stuff. There's no doubt about that. But we are so grateful that you force us to expand our minds, to look at things in a completely different way. We tend to be so inwardly focused. We, we look at ourselves. We, we compare you to ourselves when it ought to be the other way around. So, Father, help us to see ourselves as what we really are, really um, not much, um, just specks in this grand universe, but specks that are deeply loved by you, specks for whom you 
gave your very own son to die that whoever believes in him, Jew or Gentile, might not perish but have everlasting life. Father, we give you praise, glory, and honor through Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you.